If you're interested in understanding more deeply the nuances, how things aren't black and white. If you're interested in questions without answers. If you like figuring it out for yourself, then you've come to the right place. I'm Sean of Dr. Sean Explains, and I approach things differently because I'm methodical. I'm an engineer. I have some medical knowledge, as I'm a doctor, and hopefully I could put those things together to give us some insight into this delightful world we live in. Welcome to Dr. Sean Explains, my YouTube channel. This is the background video, so basically I will tell you my background to help you understand where I'm coming from and how to go about understanding this. So my name is Sean. I was trained as an engineer. The way I think about things is as an engineer, we always differentiated between the science majors like biology and engineering students, or maybe even chemists. As an engineer, it is important to understand the concept behind things. The details, the facts, that's not so important. They may change. So we don't want to memorize that because it's just wasting our brain space. But understanding the concepts is essential because the concepts remain. In medical school and in residency, I kept hearing something about the rule of half and ten. Half of what we believe today to be right, to be gospel truth, to be the gold standard, will be proven to be wrong 10 years later. As in, by the time the next decade rolls around, much of what we learn is actually going to be incorrect. Given that, how do you do anything when a lot of what we're doing is wrong? And that's where the principles come into play. Principles like causality. That's a principle that we all believe in. Without causality, we would have nothing. Without causality, there would be no science. Causality is the principle that something happens because of something else. There's a linkage. There's a cause and effect. And we still believe that today. We believed it thousands of years ago, and we still believe it today. It has been proven true. A silly example of non-causality was somebody gets sick and you figure out they have the virus and that's why they're sick. Except that they actually didn't have the virus till later. That wouldn't be causal. Something that happened after the fact couldn't have caused the event a day before. Other principle is critically interpreting data and new conclusions. If it doesn't make sense, do you believe it? Do you think about how it could be true or do you just ignore it completely because it doesn't make any sense? Some people think of it as entertaining stupidity. But to those people I say it's like the idea of the earth revolving around the sun. Now we think it's common sense, but hundreds of years ago we didn't think so. Rather we thought it was stupid. When somebody questions the status quo, oftentimes they're thought of as stupid, as an idiot. Obviously, this is the way we do it. Why would you think otherwise? But sometimes they're right. I learned in residency to be my own devil's advocate, to be open to new ideas, even the ones that go contrary to what I believe currently. And the context was coming to a differential diagnosis. 
I'm trained as an internal medicine doctor. Internists, for short, were supposed to be the people who were the thinkers of medicine. The people who don't do as much physically, they were not ones who do procedures or surgeries, were the ones who think about things, put the pieces together, and figure out a solution. Something that makes it all come together. Differential diagnosis is the method we use coming to a diagnosis. A patient comes to you with a symptom, and you're trying to come up with a diagnosis for their symptom. For example, they complain of a cough. There's two different approaches. The first approach is the one that's taught in medical school, that's taught in residency. The broad sweep approach, I'll call it. You list every possible diagnosis for cough, all the diseases that you could think of, and you go through them one by one, crossing out the ones that don't make sense, leaving the ones that remain, and then you do testing to eliminate it further. Theoretically, that may work, except for the minor detail that we don't know all possible diagnoses for cough. I do it the iterative way. So in engineering, we have many ways of solving a problem. We have something called depth first versus breath first for going through a tree, for example. But anyways, the iterative way is you do something first, you see if it works out, and if not, you do something further. And so I think of the most common causes for a cough. For me, that's just what pops into my head. If it pops into my head, it must be common. I look to see if it fits the pattern, or if it doesn't fit, if there's red flags, something atypical about it, something just fishy about this, then you dig further, you do more testing. If it doesn't fit any of the common things, then you think of less common things. You may have to do some research to figure things out. A lot of information is available online, and there's no harm to doing that, to searching. It's what we do in engineering all the time, open book tests. Because the point is not to memorize these silly things you can look up so easily, especially with the internet nowadays. Let me give you an example of this theory, of this approach. So a patient came in, and the complaint was he is short of breath. And so my intern presents to me all the information or she thinks she's presenting all the relevant information. So she says, yeah, he's this you know, middle-aged man. He's saying he's short of breath. You know, his oxygen's a little bit low. Um, we did a chest x-ray. It looks, you know, the radiologist read it as having a pneumonia. So I think he has a normal pneumonia, which we call community-acquired pneumonia. The other type we usually call a hospital or healthcare-associated. So he is from the community, hasn't been exposed to any healthcare settings recently, so we call community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP, CAP for short. So I look through the data, and I looked through it already before she comes and talks to me, and I noticed something was very fishy. When I looked at the x-ray, it didn't look like a classical pneumonia. It was very strange, and he was young. He was in his late 40s, and he shouldn't be that sick from just a normal pneumonia, because he's otherwise healthy. So you look at these things and you think of what's common. The thing is, when things pop up that are weird, that are atypical, you have to pay attention to them. These signs. And sometimes you have to investigate further. And so I was wondering if there's something weird about this guy. 
So I talked to the intern, you know, hey, did you look at the x-ray? She said, no, I just read the radiologist report. I said, that's fine. You know, we don't always have time to look at the x-ray. Let's look at it together. Do you see much? For pneumonia, we usually consider pneumonia bacteria pneumonia, that is. There is viral pneumonias. But bacteria pneumonia, we see a clump. We call consolidation on the x-ray. A big lump somewhere of white. But he didn't have that. He had increased interstitial markings, which means the lines that are normally very faint are more obvious on his x-ray. And I asked her, so is he short of breath? And he said, yeah, he's pretty short of breath, just with a little activity, which also is sort of weird, right? He's okay just sitting there, but he's very short of breath with little activity. And he has no medical issues so far as we know. So I began to th think about atypical pneumonias. And there's quite a few, but one we learned about commonly is called PCP pneumonia, or PJP is the new name, but pneumocystis gerobecki. And it's most common in people who have AIDS. So I asked her, what does this guy look like? He is African-American. I asked, did you ask about his sexual history? Because mostly we think of people at higher risk are people who we call MSM men who have sex with men. And she said, no. She hadn't. I said, that's fine. I'll ask him when I go see him. I have to see him anyways, right? So I went and talked to him. And yeah, he was awfully short of breath for an otherwise normal looking guy. And yes, he did have sex with men. And so it was pretty clear that he had a PCP pneumonia to me. But it's also very easy to miss if you just think of common things being common. Because it's not just about the common things being common. But it's also about questioning yourself. And one of my attendings was very smart. Said you have to be your own devil's advocate. That's one of the issues. We fall in love with our own diagnosis. We just fall in love with it simply. We love being right. Everybody does, especially doctors. And the only way to be open to new ideas, to things that are contrary to what you think, is to be your own devil's advocate. Be the first to poke a hole in your theory and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. An engineer turned doctor. Somebody who thinks through things. Looks at things and say, hey, can this make sense? It's a different approach than many people. A lot of doctors like evidence. They like data. But I don't know. Think of it that way, because the problem is the world has changed, and yet they're still doing things the same way they have. See, in computer science, you couldn't do that. You would be outdated. You have to keep learning, keep updating yourself, keep refreshing yourself. As a doctor, unfortunately, many people get by without learning new ways of doing things. But the problem is when new information is coming out quickly, when new information is uncertain, unvetted, when it's not a standardized randomized controlled trial, RCT is our gold standard. How do you interpret it? And I think of the example recently of the Boeing 737 MAX. The first crash happened. They said, ah, you know, Indonesia, they're, they're, uh, they, they just, you know, they don't know how to fly. Like, well, I mean, that could be true. They have more lax safety centers, but they don't have crashes all the time. Sort of strange. And then the second one, you know, people at Boeing in the U.S., they were still saying it's okay until other governments started shutting down the 737 MAX and then they followed suit. 
But that's sort of the issue nowadays, right? You see all these organizations like the CDC, the WHO, by the time they come out with guidelines, it's sort of too late. Why? Because they're behind the curve. They're never the ones to be ahead of the curve. And why is that? Well, because they make statements like, well, there's insufficient evidence. Yes, I agree there's insufficient evidence. There's insufficient evidence to publish this in a textbook. But what about practical suggestions for reality? I don't know what their answer to that is, right? I remember attending a Mayo conference. It was about cardiology, about the heart. And one of the lecturers there was an expert. He was on the, all the committees and stuff. And so he was talking about standard of care. And he said, you want to do standard of care? Well, let me tell you what standard of care means. Standard of care means putting your brain and not thinking about anything. And I agree. Standard of care is delayed. It just has to be that way. By the time you get all this data together, it's been years, literally. My friend is an oncologist. And she doesn't do standard of care. She's doing clinical trials left and right. They're pushing the boundaries of what we can do. And their organization recommends every cancer patient to be enrolled in a clinical trial. Because you want standard of care, I mean, if you want the way they treated you in the Stone Ages, sure, that's fine. But don't you want the newest and the best? So we're going to start on this journey of talking about medicine, medical care. The coronavirus for nowadays is what people focus on. Now, come up with some talks about how I view the data coming out about the coronavirus and some possibilities that maybe other people don't mention.